please be advised that this episode explores the topics of murder and hanging and contains content that some listeners may find distressing. If you're listening for the first time, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. Once you start reading the gravestones from the Devonshire Street Cemetery, it can be difficult to tear yourself away. Most just give the essentials, name, age, date of death, and sometimes a flickering glimpse at that person's final moments. Bitten by a snake, killed by the falling of a cedar log, assassinated by a lunatic in this city. The turmoil and uncertainty of 19th century life is writ large and clear, and you can't help but see these individuals start to appear before you. In some cases, the inscriptions really are the only record we have of some people's lives. Their stories are buried with them. But for many, you don't have to dig too deep to find out more, especially when there was a sensational story for the newspapers to print. This episode, we're delving into the story behind one of the more gruesome inscriptions from the grave of Esther and Samuel Bradley. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know, I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. Sacred to the memory of Esther and Samuel Bradley, inhumanely murdered by their servant on the 15th of August, 1822. Here to tell us the tale is Rachel Franks. I mean, the idea of wrapping a guy up in a rug and chucking him out his own back window, it's just horrific. Rachel runs the fellowship program here at the library, but lucky for us, she also happens to be an expert in colonial crime. Often people just suffocate slowly on the gallows. Sometimes you actually just take the person's head off, and that's quite a spectacle. One thing to note before we begin is that this story takes place in Birchgrove, one of Sydney's more expensive harbourfront suburbs. It's just a few kilometres and a pleasant 20-minute ferry ride from the city today. But in 1822, it was an isolated place. On the map of Sydney, created the very same August that the Bradleys were murdered, Birchgrove does not even appear. In fact, the map stops well short of it. We don't know why the Bradleys chose Birchgrove, but we do know they had recently moved there from Lane Cove, an even more remote settlement in the wider Sydney area. Here's Rachel. On Thursday the 15th of August 1822, Samuel Bradley, 59, and his wife Esther, 65, were brutally murdered at their home in Birchgrove. The crime wasn't discovered until more than two weeks later, when, on Sunday the 1st of September, the Bradleys' modest home was found deserted and ransacked. An acquaintance of the pair, Mr Berry, was on his way to visit his friend Mr Wollstonecraft on the North Shore, when he dropped in, unannounced, at the Bradleys' place. Berry later testified in court that the premises wore the unwelcome aspect of desertion, the house being thrown open with every appearance of having lately been plundered. In an act we'd find shocking today, Berry and his party stayed at the crime scene around 20 minutes, just to look around, 
They found a bone in a putrefied state which they thought was the limb of an animal. It would later be proven that the bone was one of the arms of Samuel Bradley, who had arrived in Australia as a free man in 1814. The small group continued to Wollstonecraft's property on the other side of the harbour. Wollstonecraft took action and immediately dispatched two of his surgeons to take charge of the dwelling at Birchgrove and sent information into town to Chief Constable Dunn. Once police were on the case, no time was lost in rounding up suspects. The day after Berry's discovery, police had a man in custody on suspicion of murder and two more people apprehended as accessories. All three were found in possession of several articles of property belonging to the murdered pair. The most gruesome find that Monday was the body of Mr Bradley. About 500 yards from the house, he'd been murdered, then mutilated with an axe. There'd been an attempt to destroy the evidence by burning the body, which had also been attacked by dogs. Mrs Bradley was not found that day and it was assumed her body had been destroyed by fire. The coroner's inquest returned verdicts of willful murder against the three people picked up by police. Thomas Barry, the only servant of the Bradleys, as well as John Cochrane and Bridget Howell. Thomas Barry confessed, sort of. He stated the murderers of the Bradleys were actually William Barry and Dennis Lamb. He, Barry asserted, had just been a witness to the crimes. This despite someone seeing Thomas Barry on the 17th of August with scratches on his face and several obvious bloodstains on his clothing. Barry said he'd simply fallen on the rocks and had lost five pounds. An unsubstantiated and unbelievable story. So it turns out that Thomas Barry, one of our three suspects, was in fact a convict. He'd been a government servant but had run away from his assignment. Birchgrove's remoteness from the main township maybe made it a sensible hiding place for an escaped convict. But what is unclear is whether the Bradleys, in taking Barry on as their servant, thought he was a free settler or were knowingly harbouring a criminal. Either way, they can't have known that Barry was capable of such violence. Barry did give information on the fate of Mrs Bradley. Her body was in the garden, nearly five feet in the ground, in quite an opposite direction to that of Mr Bradley. About 30 yards from the house, her skull was beaten in at the right temple, her jawbone was broken, and her face and tongue had been cut, presumably with the same axe used as a weapon against her husband. Esther Bradley was still dressed and, unlike her husband Samuel Bradley, still in one piece. I don't know how much adrenaline pumps through somebody's body after they've just committed a double murder, but this is frenzied behaviour. To dig a hole five feet deep and large enough to fit a body rolled up in a rug is a truly phenomenal task. On Friday, the 18th of October, 1822, Sydney-siders could read all about the trial in the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser. Early trial reports are often confusing and quite repetitive, but you can pick out the who, what, where and how, and usually the why, of the big colonial courtroom dramas. 
Thomas Barry was indicted for murder, as were the two men Barry implicated in his confession, William Barry and Dennis Lamb. The relationships between the three men are not made clear in the news reports. Also indicted were John Cochrane and Bridget Howell as accessories after the fact and for holding stolen property. The most detailed testimony at the trial came from the coroner, George Milner Slade, paying particular attention to the state of both corpses. Slade also recounted Thomas Barry's confession, which, in summary, declared, On Thursday night, between seven and eight, Mr Bradley came home, that Mrs Bradley had come home and that he, Thomas Barry, and William Barry and Lamb were in the house. Lamb fired a piece at the back of Bradley, who did not fall, but was immediately dispatched by Lamb with a blow from the piece, that Mrs Bradley, who was in the outer room, was knocked down and killed that, as soon as Bradley was killed, he was rolled up in a carpet and put out the back window, that they, Barry and Lamb, took the corpse of Mrs Bradley and conveyed it to the bottom of the garden, also rolled up in a carpet, that the two men dug the hole for Mrs Bradley's body before taking the body of Mr Bradley away. The bloody axe was then cleaned and later found in the Bradley's chimney, followed by discussions about splitting up the loot. So Thomas Barry admitted he knew of plans to rob the Bradleys and to taking stolen goods, but he denied knowing anything about the impending murders. He claimed those crimes were committed suddenly by Lamb and Barry. In an effort to paint the men he was accusing as truly evil, he stated that Lamb, about four months prior, had ill-used Mrs Bradley at Lane Cove. The term ill-used, a common euphemism for rape, it could be that this crime precipitated the Bradleys' move from Lane Cove to Birchgrove. So this story just goes from horror to horror and the details start to become quite murky. The historical record only goes so far in filling in the gaps, but you can't help but wonder, is any part of Thomas Barry's account to be believed? Was he related to William Barry? Were William and Dennis even at the Bradleys' property on the day of the murders? Did they even know the Bradleys, or was Thomas trying to just set them up to take the fall? We'll never have all the answers, but the trial did uncover some interesting details in Thomas Barry's movements following the murders. Mr Dunn, Chief Constable, recounted his arrival at the Bradley property and he supported the testimonies of Barry and Slade. Interestingly, Dunn added that about a fortnight before the murders were discovered, Thomas Barry had been apprehended in Sydney for drunken and riotous behaviour. When searched, he raised the suspicions of police. Barry said that some of the items on him he'd found on the racecourse, an unlikely claim, while other items he told police were part payment of wages from Mr Bradley, Barry asserting he'd been in the Bradley's employ for eight months. Central to the case against Thomas Bradley was a watch and chain. Michael Byrne, a publican in Pitt Street, said he'd been given the watch and chain in question by Thomas Barry on the 17th of August in security for a liquor debt just days after the Bradleys were murdered. A couple of days later, Barry returned to collect the item. This evidence is critical 
Many murders have been motivated by greed, and selling the Bradleys' animals and personal effects would have raised a tidy sum. Having an unpaid debt, however, added an urgency to these crimes. The watch sworn to by Michael Byrne as being held by Thomas Barry was positively identified as belonging to Mr Bradley. Watchmakers Henry Robinson and James Oatley also gave evidence. Robinson declared he'd on one occasion repaired the watch for Mr Bradley, while Oatley had been asked by Barry to clean the watch on the 31st of August. Several witnesses swore to the good characters of William Barry and Dennis Lamb, as well as to the characters of John Cochrane and Bridget Howe. After what was described as a laborious trial of several hours, an example of the strong focus on speedy justice in the 19th century, Thomas Barry received a verdict of guilty. The men he accused of murder, William Barry and Dennis Lamb, were acquitted. Cochrane and Howe were also found not guilty, having come into possession of the Bradleys' property via Thomas Barry. Thomas Barry was hanged on Monday the 14th of October 1822. His body was then, as was common at the time, handed over to the surgeons for dissection. Some research into what evil might look like physically and a final insult to a condemned man. In a last-minute act of remorse, Barry recanted his earlier confession and declared before the hangman and all of the witnesses present that he was the only and sole murderer and that he had no accomplices in the unparalleled deed. The Bradleys were buried at Devonshire Street Cemeteries, only a couple of years after the graveyard opened. In an unfortunate error, Esther's name was carved as Easter. There is no record of where the broken bodies of the Bradleys were moved after Devonshire Street cemeteries closed. It is likely they were two of the thousands of unclaimed bodies that were exhumed in 1901 and removed by tram to the Bunurong Cemetery, a quiet, final resting place for a couple who met a tragic end. There was such a public outcry at this crime and crimes in general. So the 1820s and 1830s in Sydney, this is peak hanging season for the colony. There were a record number of death sentences commuted in this period, but more people went to the gallows across these two decades than at any other time. It was bloody for the people of Sydney who are experiencing these crimes, but also for the judicial system, which in some respects was almost brutalising itself in trying to deter crime. And did it work at all? Even by 1803, we knew that hanging didn't work. So, you know, we raised the Union Jack in Sydney Cove on the 26th of January in 1788. We waited a month and a day before we hanged a man Most people report that he was a teenager, just 17 years of age, for stealing food. So this idea of, well, we must issue the ultimate punishment, the ultimate sentence of the law for any minor infraction, this idea of total and complete control. And if you look very closely at the statistics, crime in relation to the size of the population didn't increase dramatically, but the violence 
was becoming more overt. And by the time we make it through these two decades and we're into the 1840s, there is this absolute sense of urgency and this idea that Sydney is in the grips of this crime wave and what are people going to do about it? And there's a phenomenal amount of pressure on the government to come up with solutions to this problem. So this idea that the public hanging would deter crime and remake this society into a more civilised group of peace-loving, law-abiding citizens. Yeah, these accounts of public hangings are so extraordinary for our 21st century ears to hear. Um, they're so barbaric for us to imagine that they would have been public events. It's like, would we have gone? Is this a, a public event where you would go and meet your friends and go and, and watch the event? I mean, I just can't reconcile that. The idea that you can make everybody stop and bring them together for these ritualised hangings which is quite a barbaric way to get rid of somebody. It's just bizarre. You almost inoculate people to that level of, of violence. And you would have people who would go in support of the condemned. We didn't have a lot of entertainments in early Sydney, so it's almost like anything that breaks the monotony of jailing and being jailed Oh, okay, I'll go along to that. Some people, we knew that they had done something really dreadful, but we couldn't quite pin it on them. So we would often make them go and watch a hanging as part of this didactic, we might get you next time, and this is what's going to happen to you if we do. And then there are also, and I would like to always think, a very, very small percentage of the population who went for this macabre, curiosity and waiting for something to go wrong. So hanging is not a fine art. It's actually really technical. It's really hard to do. Often people just suffocate slowly on the gallows. Sometimes you actually just take the person's head off and that's quite a spectacle. So you can imagine there's this sort of theatre-esque ritual. You know, the law is on parade, men of the cloth are on parade, you know, this sort of religious endorsement of, actually, we're not supposed to kill each other, but in this instance, you know, we're doing it for the greater good. You know, there'd often be a few final words on the scaffold, and then, you know, I always think of the hood or the cloth that's put over the condemned's head is this, like, the final curtain in this weird theatrical setting. But it was also very clinical. So the coffins are usually right there in front of them so that they can be whisked away. And if they're going to be dissected, you know, it's all very convenient. There's a wheelbarrow not too far. You know, it's this absolutely grotesque normalcy of violent death. Mm, fascinating. The, the big question is, of course, was the convicted murderer buried in the same cemetery, the Devonshire Street Cemetery, that his poor victims were? It's not always specified where felons end up. Uh, sometimes the dissection is such a thorough job, there's not much left over. Sometimes it's quite clear where somebody goes. 
different colonies would do different things. So in Melbourne, for example, you would be buried on prison grounds. In Sydney, there was a contract let and people would come and they would claim the body and they would be buried somewhere. And I think there's other criminals that we know of that were hanged at Darlinghurst and then they were buried in sort of a, an area. Yes, the miscellaneous. Yeah, or the <laughs> unconsecrated area perhaps. That's where his remains were buried. I guess we just will never know. We don't know. Sometimes it's quite interesting and, you know, if the government really did botch a hanging, sometimes they would even pay to have somebody buried. Right. That's amazing. So we know that executions continued in Australia of convicted prisoners up until the 1960s. But when did the last public hangings take place? The last public hanging at the old Darlinghurst jail was in 1852. We were trying to civilise slowly um, our judicial system. And it was actually quite an achievement because... This was 10 years before England, where we had brought this system from, were actually moving their hangings indoors. They were still doing the grand public execution. One of the collections, I guess, that I was most fascinated by when I was preparing for this exhibition is, of course, the the Foster um, negatives, the, the photographs that Josephine Foster took just prior to the cemetery being resumed. And that's where, of course, you can see she's actually taken a photograph of Samuel and Easter, or Esther Bradley's grave. Like me, are you also fascinated by the, these photographs? Or how, what do you glean out of, what do you take away, I suppose, from these photographs as evidence? The historical record is so imperfect. There are just so many gaps and so many little niggling blank spaces that you can never go in and fill out. So these photographs are terrific because the whole story is there. You have the crime narrative there on the gravestone. It's so striking. And it it really encapsulates for me this idea of the Gothic in Sydney, you still have this quite wild landscape and this bushland and that that early idea of just not knowing what's out in the bush. You know, so many things were unrecognisable. You have these fantastically coloured birds and all these strange noises. It must have been absolutely terrifying for some people. And so I love this thread of, of the Gothic and it's not sequestered out into the bush. It's there. It's in the middle of town in a graveyard. The other question was as well, you know, the poor Esther getting her name spelt incorrectly on her gravestone. Do we know if they had children? I was wondering who might have put the headstone up. I don't think they did have children. There was no record of them in the newspaper accounts and often there would be even just sort of a little slip of a line, you know, who they leave behind or who turned up to support the prosecution in court. You know, people would would go to court um, out of interest or because they were actually really invested in the outcome. Sometimes gravestones would be mounted by subscription. So you have uh, big personalities, big people of the day, and people wanted a lasting 
memorial. So it makes sense that people would contribute perhaps to a celebrity gravestone or a memorial or a relief to be left in a church, something like that. But I think also there was a real awareness that anybody could be a victim of crime. And this idea that you had this very elderly couple, they had a few friends. You know, she had friends in Sydney. They obviously had Berry, who was close enough to them that he was comfortable dropping in unannounced. So it makes sense that if there was nobody left behind, that people would pitch in to have a gravestone created. And by extension, if there's a mistake they're not necessarily going to have the resources to have another one made. Esther and Samuel's shocking end is one of many stories immortalised on the headstones of the Devonshire Street Cemetery. Many thanks to the wonderful Rachel Franks. She'll be joining us in later episodes with tales of police corruption and murder. Next time on The Burial Files... You probably don't want to ask too seriously, did they get the right remains? I mean, it probably was a little bit hit and miss. We look at what it took to exhume 30,000 graves and visit what's left of the Devonshire Street Cemetery. There they all are. Oh, my goodness. They're so big when you see them in real life. Oh, that's incredible. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voice of Hilary Catherine Golder. I'm Elise Edmonds.